Well, I want to welcome all of you uh, this evening. Uh, it's good to see all of you here uh, on Zoom, even though I'm just getting maybe a mini square size uh, version of you uh, on my monitor, but I'll take it. But uh, as a group, uh, we've been going through the book of Malachi, and this is a sermon series which we have appropriately titled uh, A Covenant Love, A Committed Life. And so we'll be resuming where Pastor Alan left off last week uh, by covering the last verse of chapter 2 and then the first five verses of chapter 3. Um, so if you're able, as if you're not driving right now while on this Zoom meeting like via your phone, uh, I would like for you to uh, take open your Bibles and um, open up to the book of Malachi, uh, to chapter 2, verse 17. And I'm going to go ahead and read our passage, and then I'll pray for our time tonight. Malachi chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for just this evening, Lord. Pray that you would uh, speak to us through your word, Lord. Uh, I pray that we would have an enlarged view of you, Lord, uh, a bigger uh, idea and uh, uh, affections for just how righteous you are, Lord, uh, for how how just of a God you are, for you are perfectly just, Lord, and there was no one like you. And so I pray that in light of that, Lord, we would have we come out of this with an enlarged view, a bigger view of you, Lord, and appropriate assessment of ourselves in our own hearts. So we pray that your spirit would convict us, Lord, as well as to bring forth clarity in tonight's passage. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, Praxis, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, this year, uh, 2020, uh, is going to be a year I think that all of us are going to remember pretty well. Uh, one doesn't have to look further than just maybe a few days ago with the contentious elections. Uh, actually, well, wait a minute. It's actually, I think, still going on right now. And leading up to it, we see just how divided this nation really is, and perhaps still is. We weren't just voting for a president, but revealing our values and what we truly care about through the local ballot measures, propositions, and locally elected leaders. We want justice in the elections and are voted, and we voted to be accounted for fairly. 
uh, many of, uh, of you, I think, might even hope for a nation where hopefully one day there's, there's more good and less evil around us and the way we, in, in the way we treat and talk to one another. After all, we see evil, we see violence and hate all around us every single day. Across the shore, a recent international news reported a beheading and killing of two other people in a church in the city of Nice, France. In Vienna, Austria, four people were killed in cold blood by suspected terrorists. And these injustices aren't just constrained to other nations. We experience it here as well. Many in this nation are concerned about the injustices and evil we see played out before our very eyes, shown on news outlets, social media for the past days, months, years, and even generation. And that feeds this desire and longing that we have for justice. We all long for justice against evil and corruption in this world. So that which is good, that which is right, would mark our society and be evident to others. We would be outraged if criminals were getting away with their crimes, wouldn't we? Why? Because we expect an appropriate measure of punishment that rightly fits the degree of offense in accordance to the rule of law. We expect those who cheat or lie to get caught rather than continue to, to oppress or abuse uh, their power and take advantage of other people. Ultimately, we long for people to get what we feel they deserve whether that be good or bad. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were maybe some of you or some, some of you in here tonight, this evening, who have ever entertained the thought or even acted under the impression, where is God in this world? Where is he in all of this? Where is God's justice? We might think to ourselves, has God taken a sabbatical? Or at the very least, he seems to be underperforming to our expectations. And what, generally speaking, do people do when they're angry or disillusioned about their circumstances? What do people do when they're shocked and frustrated over what's happening around them? They blame someone, right? And quite possibly, they blame God for the wrongs, for the, the injustices that they see perpetrated all around them. And God is used to that by now. In fact, throughout the book of Malachi, God is quite accustomed to these accusations leveled against him. But the interesting rub in that is that these accusations come from his very own chosen people. These disputes between God and his people reveal their sad spiritual state. You see, God had brought them out of exile. God had restored them to their land. God had providentially provided the, the, the means for Israel to rebuild the temple and to implement the worship service and practices as before. Yet despite all of these tangible demonstrations of God's covenant love towards his people, their hearts did not change. Their hearts remained apathetic. While God proved faithful again and again with his side of the covenant, Israel proved to be faithless in not living a committed life to God. As Pastor Allen highlighted last week, this failure and this faithlessness in response to God's love is shown by their bold words in a series of disputes where they presumptuously question God and they, they refuse to trust God and take him at his word. Instead, they doubted God by asking God to provide them with 
convincing evidences for why they should trust him and live wholeheartedly in devotion to him. First, they question God's love in chapter 1, verse 1. Second, they reveal their heartlessness by complaining that worshiping God wholeheartedly is, is just too burdensome for them. It's too big of a sacrifice. And third, they dispute the severity of their faithlessness by breaking their commitment to God, evidenced by divorcing their wives and remarrying only to worship the foreign idols of their new wives. And today in our passage, we arrive at the fourth dispute in Malachi, the case of the covenant people versus God, the charge or accusation that God is essentially unjust. And by when they make that accusation saying that God is essentially unjust, they're questioning whether God is a God of justice, whether God is righteous. He, he is consistent in doing what is right and not allowing for wrong to be perpetrated. And this is a bold accusation made by God's people that the prophet Malachi directly confronts. Malachi indicts the people for their unrighteous thinking and life before a just God. So this is a topic that we're going to be exploring tonight in our passage, which brings us to our key idea. God demonstrates his justice in sending a savior to purify his people and to judge those who reject him. And if you're following along in your notes, the first point that we'll look at is that God's justice is questioned. Look at the indictment Malachi describes in verse 17. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? See, the, the charge that Malachi brings before God's people is the audacity they have in challenging his character. He says that God is wearied by them. There's a nuance here. It wasn't just a one-time thought that just crossed their minds innocently one day. This wasn't a genuine request where they simply wanted to just understand God's justice better. You see, God is not weary by honest, heartfelt pleas and cries from his people during times of distress. Those types of prayers don't weary him at all. When God's, God's people pray, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me like David did in Psalm 13? That kind of prayer, that kind of request, that kind of question does not weary him. And the Psalms are full of those types of cries and prayers for help that God encourages us to come to him as we seek his face. He doesn't get tired of hearing those types of words since he is a God that loves his people. But God is weary by unrighteous living and brazen character assassination of him, of God. And that is the exact situation that Malachi confronts here. God is tired of these ongoing multiple repeated complaints and charges that his people have brought against him. It was as if they were bringing up a frivolous case against an innocent and blameless God and trying to drag it out, even though they totally misjudged God and are the ones in the wrong. He's weary by the blame he's receiving, ironically, from his very own people. And we understand what it feels like, right, to be misjudged, don't we? Perhaps some of you can think of a time when you were misjudged by someone, or maybe you were wrongly accused of something that you didn't do. How did that affect your relationship with that person? Well, that misjudgment and accusation made against God distorted their relationship with him. 
The attitude that the people have here in Malachi's indictment speaks volumes about their hearts. They say, how have we wearied? But Malachi accurately understands the attitudes of these people, of his people. In fact, he accurately puts the right words in their mouths. He beats them to the punch by speaking what was truly on their hearts. He lays out all the wrong-headed assumptions about God's character, like a dirty, uh, laund like dirty laundry for them to see. And the prevailing attitude of God's people is accented with pessimism. First, they perverted God's character by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. There is no innocence in their claim for it would have gone against what they have should have already known about God. They perverted God's character by claiming God endorses what evildoers do. But, and, and then they even raised the level of accusation that God delights in them. Even the prophet Isaiah said centuries earlier in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Since evil prevailed so greatly in the nation, they thought God wouldn't be bothered by it. And this led them to a distorted conclusion that God must actually encourage evil, right? If he's not doing anything about it, it then doesn't really matter how they lived. After all, if those who disobey God seem to have a, a better life than those who try to live faithfully to him, what's the point in serving him? What's the point in worshiping him? What's the point in living wholeheartedly to him rather than living like the evildoers? And when you have a warped view of God and get him wrong, your whole foundation for living gets messed up too. It's as if believers start thinking along the lines that, God can't be concerned about righteousness anymore and that he doesn't care about justice. And we too can become confused like that. Like Israel, we will find ways to reimagine or distort who God truly is to fit our own morality or maybe validate our reason for our sinful behavior. And that was the mindset that they have and that we can fall trapped to too. We think, oh, well, since God loves me, he's on my side he must love the things that I love, even if it's evil or the path of sin. He, he'll be okay with it, right? And isn't that how we sometimes think when we try to accommodate or, or rationalize our sinful habits or propensities or to, to, to justify the idols in our hearts that can be enslaving to us? Second, they accuse and believe God's, uh, God was absent. They believe God was absent by saying, where is the God of justice? So that's the second part of this. They thought God's presence was absent. When they questioned God's justice, it revealed that they felt God had just given up on his sovereign care and involvement in the world. God's sovereign? No, no way. He's, he's not involved. Right? It's like saying, God, you're no longer interested in what's happening here on earth and, and what we're experiencing right now, are you? And in their minds, God had failed them. God had failed to punish those who do evil. Evil and corruption seemed to have gotten the, the last laugh. But there's more. In claiming God is not fair, the people use that claim to then excuse themselves of their sinful lifestyle while simultaneously calling others evil. They were ignited over the evil of others while living ignorant of their own evil against God in their disobedience. After all, they used that skewed rationalization for their own sinful behavior and lack, lack of wholehearted worship and love for God. 
God, was there maybe cosmic cop-out or, or scapegoat to continue living faithless lives? But the problem wasn't primarily head knowledge. Their ancestors in the faith would have been a prime example of experiencing God's presence, such as when they were delivered from Egyptian captivity under the rule of Pharaoh. God gave them even the, the sacrificial system so that um, he could dwell with them and they, they could live according to his righteous laws. Uh, they would have remembered the period when they had no king, yet God provided uh, judges to deliver his people and judge them when they lived unrighteously. And just like Malachi confronted God's people in their day of the presumption that God was unjust or that he was unrighteous, what happened was they were blinded from seeing their own sin. So we would do well to likewise ask of ourselves as believers in Christ, what is it that's unfair or unjust in this world? Or maybe about others. What's unfair about others, you, you feel like? That you would then rationalize your own sin. That you would maybe think and, and justify or and rationalize your lack of living faithfully for God. Maybe for some of you, what's unfair or unjust is that someone seems to be more blessed than you. That seems to be the way they put it, right? Except that, oh, the evil are prospering rather than the good like themselves. So maybe you think that God delights in everyone except you, right? That other people are more blessed than you. Maybe for that person, that they have a job or position in a field that you want to work or get into. So the fact that you don't have what they have has led your heart down maybe a path of bitterness or, or, or jealousy towards that person. And that has resulted in the complaining towards God. Maybe some of you think everyone else's life seems to be going fine and better than your own, even though you don't perceive that person to be as good or maybe as, as righteous as yourself. They don't deserve that, right? I deserve it. And in your thought life and actions practices, what does that say about your view of God and his righteousness? What does that unearth from your heart about how you view God when you question his presence in your life? In what ways, praxis, have you forgotten or failed to remember, failed to, to acknowledge his presence in your life? And just like God is not absent from the lives of his people, neither is he silent about his justice. Despite the failings of God's chosen people, he actually does respond to them. He doesn't ignore his people. God offers hope for justice since God is very much in love with his people. We know this because following God's astounding indictment of his people comes an astounding promise for them as well. God's answer to justice is a promise. And this is our second point for this evening. God's justice promised. Chapter 3, verse 1 reads, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So in verse 1, God answers the complaints and accusations about himself by, by making a promise addressed to his people. And he says emphatically, behold, essentially, listen up, pay attention to what I have to say about your complaints, uh, about justice. Yes, I'm talking to you. First, the justice that God promises will come by way of a messenger. And the role of the messenger, uh, that's first meant, the, the first uh, messenger that's, that's mentioned here in verse 1, is going to prepare the way for God's arrival. You see, back in ancient times, 
kings would inform their, their, their subjects and uh, maybe in a state or a province of their arrival, that they're going to make a visit, right? And they would do that through a messenger going first. Kind of like how an announcement is made in modern times of a president's arrival and the freeways and roads are, are sectioned off and a path is clear. And this first messenger is a forerunner that provides a pathway for the king's grand entrance when he comes. We have the privilege as Christians today know that, to know that the messenger that God promised to send was none other than the prophet, John the Baptist. The one prophesied about also in Isaiah 43, where it says, a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The promise God made with his people would be fulfilled some approximately 400 years later after the period of Malachi, where the story of God's justice will continue in the Gospels, such as Matthew 3, where John the Baptist actually does arrive in the flesh, and he's born, and he prepares the way for Jesus by proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Verse 1 continues here. Look at how Malachi gives his prophecy here. And the Lord whom you seek. And the word for Lord here refers here to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. Once the forerunner has done his role as a messenger proclaiming the arrival of the king, he steps aside so that the focus would be on Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the deliverer of justice that the people of Malachi's day sought. And the person God promised to send. He will come suddenly, which doesn't mean he's going to come like right away or immediately, but he's going to come surprisingly, kind of like an unexpected visit that one does not plan for or can account for. And the Lord is also the messenger of the covenant. He is the messenger of a new covenant and the mediator of this covenant between God and man, because this covenant was made by Jesus' body broken for us and his blood being poured out for us on the cross. Jesus was also the, the prophet in that he continued proclaiming truth and picked up where John the Baptist left when he pro, uh, proclaimed, blessed be those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. His teaching had authority like no other. Now, if I were to straight up tell you, well, practice the answer to justice and all the evil in this world is Jesus Christ. You might think, okay, good. End of sermon. Now Chris can go home and reflect on, and I can reflect on the, the elections. Because this is just too basic, right? It's too simplistic. And while, yes, the answer for the most part is Jesus, the why behind God answering the way he does matters too when we talk about justice. After all, everyone desires justice. To us, we might think, uh, Israel, you sure you want justice? Because that also means you're going to get what's coming to you. But the promise God makes answers that. We are in inconsistent in our hearts as a people, right? A thief will get mad if someone stole, uh, steals something from them. A liar will be offended if someone lies to him or her. The expectations that people have fall short of the true justice God envisions because people are inherently hypocrites. So God answers them. It's as if he's saying, do you really want justice? Do you really want my presence to give you that justice. Because at this point, if they really want the justice of God, Israel's in trouble too. Justice wouldn't just come for all those evil people they keep 
pointing to as being problematic, they're going to have to face God's justice for their own spiritual apathy, for their own sin. Yet God is able to demonstrate his perfect justice, his righteousness by upholding his covenant love towards his people. He's able to provide the solution for the people's failed religion and their faithlessness. He answers the question of where is God's justice by a promise to send a messenger of justice, his very self, right? And that's who Jesus is, the son of God. And that's how you can tell that he's going to send God as a messenger, the son of God, Jesus. Even though things look bad in the life of the nation of Israel, he promises to come through for them. Yet there is an, an irony here, too, in Malachi, when he says, in whom you delight. They claim to be eager for, for Jesus' coming, for the Messiah's coming. But the question left hanging on our minds after hearing of the promised Savior is how will they respond? After all, they were the ones who claimed God delighted in evil people. They were the ones who pretended to, to hate and denounce evil and and desire the messenger of the covenant to arrive, bringing justice. So would they be able to comprehend when the Savior comes? Would they be ready? Do they understand what God's justice entails? And that brings us to our third point tonight, that God's justice purifies. God's justice purifies. That is one of the purposes that is going to be played out in God's justice, that it will be a purifying justice. Verse 2 to 4 reads, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. The fact of the matter is that No one can endure his coming. Everyone is going to be confronted and have to deal with God's justice, including his people. For as 1 Peter 4.17 writes, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? These verses speak of a a future day of, of the Lord, a time of God's righteous justice demonstrated through judgment. We live in a period between Christ's first appearance and then his promised second appearance, his second coming. So while God's just judgment isn't fully finalized and complete right now, you know, the process has already begun when the truth about Jesus is revealed, but people don't believe in him. While Jesus's first coming is marked primarily by salvation and his second will primarily be marked by complete and final judgment, the consummation of justice. Jesus also said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. So what does God's justice look like through his righteous judgment? How does he prove himself to abhor evil and love what is good, unlike the charges that are brought against him? First, we are given a word of hope. And this hope is found in the reality that God purifies his people by cleansing them. So God purifies by cleansing his people. And Malachi uses two images here to help us to understand how God cleanses his people so that they will live righteously and justly before him. 
The first image is that of a refiner's fire. So growing up in a church, I listened to this popular song called Refiner's Fire, which talks about purifying your heart so it will be wholeheartedly devoted to God. And while some of you are maybe too young to know what song I'm talking about, and I'm making myself out to be an old dinosaur here in practice, I felt the song appropriately, appropriately, appropriately captured what God is doing in transforming his people to be more like Jesus, right? It captures the, the attitude of someone who seeks to follow God and to be wholeheartedly devoted to him, even if it means refining him or her in order to reach that ideal state. You see, when Malachi speaks of our Savior Jesus being like a refiner's fire, it's like an image borrowed from the practice of metal refinement using a forge or smelter under extremely high heat. When working with metals, the purity of the metal is important, right? Especially valuable metals. By carefully applying heat from fire, a metal worker is able to separate the impure matter to achieve a pure, a higher uh, percentage of purity in uncontaminated metal, right? So Jesus desires purity in his people, just like he desires purity in his bride, believers that make up Christ's church today. He will not settle for impurities, just like some of you married couples in here or engaged couple, uh, people would not settle for a fake gold or fake diamond ring, right? You wouldn't want cubic zirconia or a ghetto candy ring pop for your wedding day. Now, you'll want pure, flawless diamond, pure gold. And at this point, some of you ladies are nodding your heads, mentally at least, and some of you guys are likely shaking your heads because you know it's true. And the second image here is Fuller's soap. Fuller's soap was a cleansing agent. It was used to clean cloth fibers where you would soak them in water in some in alkali-based cleaner and likely came from a plant source. And the job of a fuller was to make the cloth more suitable for weaving or sewing. Uh, they would clean, uh, bleach, wet, and beat these cloth fibers into a more consistent and more uh, desirable condition. And then by, by beating and scrubbing the fabric before uh, rinsing the clothing garments, it served a specific, a specific purpose, right? It was to separate, uh, it was a separation process that separated and removed dirt from the fabric so that you only have a pure fabric at the end. The result of the Savior's purifying process is that his people will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. This offering is not a one-off thing that would happen once or in a specific period of time, but was to be a regular habit of his people God is saying that the Savior will one day purify and cleanse the Levites, the group of priests. And the cleansing of God's people began with the temple and the priests because they were responsible for the spiritual decline as mediators between God and his people. The result of the Savior's cleansing will lead them to again perform their duties rightly in the eyes of God. No longer would they offer blind animals for sacrifices, right? Or food that's been polluted as their offerings for worship. How half-hearted is that, right? How heartless is that in their worship? And they will bring righteous offerings in God's eyes once again. And these offerings in verse 4 give hope that their worship will be pleasing to him. It will be sweet and satisfying for the God they are in covenant with. Their recommitment to worship God will be renewed, just like in the, the days of Moses or any other time in Israel's history where their worship was actually marked by a spirit of faith and devotion to the Lord. There is more to righteousness than an offering that is done outwardly, 
to meet the requirements of the law in Malachi's day. You see, the heart of bringing offerings in righteousness is a continual pursuit of righteousness. It is born from faith and trust in God. And just as God's covenant people were to live by faith each day in the world that seemed unjust or unfair, today we too are called to live by faith in an unjust world or seemingly unjust world. We are God's people who have become a priesthood because we are in Christ. And because of Jesus Christ, we no longer need someone to mediate our relationship with God. For we have Jesus as our mediator, like in Malachi's day. We had the priests. And because of Christ and his spirit working in us, we are able to offer our bodies, as Romans 12, 1 to 2 says, a living sacrifice as worship to And Malachi's words of promise for, for God's people should have stirred his covenant people during his day to a heart for purity. And we must take, take heart to the words of the prophet here because many of us often say we want to be pure, but we're actually unsure if we're willing to be changed to achieve that purity. If we're willing to incur hardship and, and discipline in our lives and to strive for that. See, that's our problem, yet that's what makes, must take place in the refining process of our lives. Because we have been justified by faith in Jesus' death on the cross, where the just died for the unjust so that we might live. Therefore, our complaints about injustice in our present lives are halted when we gaze at the cross of Christ in whom we are justified, but also being sanctified in the present age. How does the metal worker know when the gold or silver they are working on is pure? Well, when they can see their shiny, gleaming reflection in the metal. And that is what refining looks like in our lives, that we see Christ's likeness to a greater degree of our lives as a sign of our purity before God. That this purification requires discipline and struggle, like beating cloth and water and fuller soap, so that the dirtiness of our sins and heart idols would remain no more. Praxis, we are God's covenant people and are loved by God because of our union with Christ. And God is committed to refine you rather than consume you with his fire of judgment. He seeks your purity and devotion to him. Therefore, we must continue to strive daily in step with the spirit and to turn away from our sin and obey the words of Christ. We can't, like Israel, uh, Israel in Malachi's day, assume that God doesn't care about justice or neglects evil and then use that as an excuse to live apathetically. We can't live uh, lives devoid of worship as if, like, who cares, you know? I'm just going to move on and carry on. So, Praxis, where does your life feel like it needs refining? What area of your life do you excuse from change or, or moving towards greater purity? You see, purity has to do with a wholehearted devotion to God, to live righteously in all areas of your life. It moves beyond the seemingly pious lip service of Oh, how have we failed to worship you, God? It challenges our hearts and calls us to examine uh, how we have perhaps focused on the sins of the people in the, the, the world and evil being done out there, all the while neglecting our own sin that has not been dealt with, that has, has been ignored. Maybe for some of you, it's a sin you have been minimizing instead of seeking the, the Lord to refine you in. Is it anxiousness or frustration? 
Is it discontentment with how restricted your life seems to be in 2020 that has led to a heart of unthankfulness and complaining attitude? Maybe for some of you, it's selfishness. The fact that everyone out in the world seems to be so selfish, yet you have failed to examine how you have been selfish with your time instead of, and maybe you have lacked a loving and caring for others because you are so focused on yourself. Maybe that's what needs refining. Or maybe it's the, the sin of judgmentalism, assuming the worst in other people and being presumptuous and judgmental on how you view and treat them while not being quick to hear and slow to speak and to understand in your conversations with other people. And quite likely in the day of Malachi, as well as today, maybe what we need to purify our hearts and minds of is worldliness. Are you so attached or so engrossed in the things of this temporal life that you have accepted certain values, certain practices of the nice, of maybe of this nice but unbelieving world? And not, not to say like everything in this world is, is, is bad or evil, right? But have you even considered that you may possibly be swept away and lured by the cultural trend of our day? Have you evaluated uh, the things that you hold to in this world and whether these practices or, or thoughts or beliefs are even biblical? You see, God seeks to purify his chosen people by cleansing them of all sin. But also, we know that God also purifies by condemning his enemies with just judgment. Look with me at verse 5 as we continue to look at how God purifies by condemning his enemies with judgment. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, said the Lord of hosts. The promise of just judgment catches us off guard sometimes. We like hopeful and joyful promises, but choose to ignore the warning of bad news. And while this passage is a precursor to the Christmas story that would be uh, per that would be perfect for an Advent series or message about the appearance of the promised Savior and his first coming. In a sense, this is not so Christmassy to view the promised Savior as the one who also judges and punishes all evildoers and those who do not believe in him at his second coming. As one pastor put it, there is danger in the manger. And really what's meant by that is this, that the coming of Jesus brings hope for some, but does also is a warning for some, that God will eventually purify the world by condemning evil and punishing evildoers to uphold his righteousness, to uphold his justice. And this fire will not be a refining fire that purifies, but it will be a consuming fire that purifies by destruction, right? by incineration, by obliteration. And what stands out is that he speaks to God's covenant people when talking about this particular type of judgment too. Right? Even though they, are, they, have, they have faith and trust in God and his covenant people. You see, they thought that judgment would never come or, or be delayed since they thought God condoned and delighted in evil. But the reality is God was giving them an opportunity to turn away, to, to repent of their sin. Because apparently God's covenant people, in all their complaining about the evil of others and the lack of justice around them, they themselves were engaged in sinful practices that Malachi calls them out on. They themselves were the evil ones. And we're just going to go over quickly and get to the, the main reason why these sins are brought up. Uh, there's a list of seven sins here. 
sorcery was basically the practice of witchcraft and was forbidden. Sorcery included per, uh, perpetuating ancient superstitions that people believed in the land and God's people inhabited. Adultery was basically sexual infidelity with another person other than your spouse. It was forbidden by God. Swearing falsely was basically perjury. It's where you uh, swear falsely using God's name to validate your vow, oath, or commitment, even though you have no intention of fulfilling what you vowed or promised. Uh, oppressing uh, a hired worker of their wages reveals the social conditions of their day and how God's people were involved in cheating ordinary workers by underpaying them or delaying the payment of their wages, as would have been fair. Rather than being generous, they nickel and dimed other people, right? Out of their own greed. Those who oppressed the widow and the fatherless revealed the depravity of God's people because they rationalized their mistreatment of others. They rationalized not bringing justice for them or not having just care for them. Widows and orphans were two of the most vulnerable groups, social groups in society back then, and arguably even today. And so these groups, they were deprived of the, the, the protector and main provider, and they had no one to care for them. They had no one to shield them from the evil and depravity of others. They were at the mercy of shady people trying to take advantage of them. And God has a special concern for these people, for, the, for this, these groups, since they too were humans made in the image of God. Their lives had equal value and dignity as the rest of society. So when God's people, covenant people, oppressed, such marginalized, at-risk groups, it meant that God's people abused their power, they abused authority by ill-treating them. While they may have had a lower status in foreign nations and cultures, this was unacceptable amongst God's people, amongst his nation, because they were called to be set apart as a banner nation that modeled and displayed to foreign nations the type of justice God was concerned about for human beings. Those who thrust aside the sojourner speaks of how foreigners in the land of God's people were mistreated. Foreigners who settled and immigrated to live with Israel were given rights in the ancient world, but they weren't always respected. They kept these strangers from receiving the justice due them. Even after the exile, the nation of Judah returned to the types of greed and corruption that devastated them and ultimately led them to exile in the first place. You see, the list of these sins that are brought up by Malachi were ones that were prominent in their day. While it's not comprehensive, it sufficiently proves the case that, Mal that Malachi tries to prove against his people, that they violated the covenant. They did not worship the Lord wholeheartedly with all their hearts, soul, mind, and strength. That they had a small view of righteousness and justice, right? They had a small view of worship to just uh, do, the, do the, the sacrifices, even though it was with a blind animal, right? Or, or spoiled uh, food that they offered before the Lord. And how similar does that list of sins ring to our contemporary ears as it connects to our social environment, our sexual culture, our spiritual health, our political climate? our economic position, our racial tension. While we're not bound by the Mosaic law of the Old Testament, as New Testament believers in Christ, we are bound by the new covenant and the same principles and heart of God that doesn't change. To love thy neighbors as ourselves, right? To love our neighbors, to, to care for orphans and widows, for this is true religion, rather than just mere lip service. 
to live in, a, in, in sexual purity and uphold the covenant of marriage rather than have adulterous hearts, uh, to give into the temptation that money can have over us for the love of money is the root of all evil. We, can, we are still prone to that, aren't we? You see, Praxis, God calls his people to a committed life to him, wholehearted right, uh, righteous life in all areas. And while our salvation in Christ can never be taken away from us, we're called to be refined. We're called to grow in greater Christ-likeness. We depend on the power of God's Spirit to change us. But we understand that sanctifying change invites us to also participate as we yield to the conviction of the Spirit as we are, when we're confronted with God's Word. As we confess our sins and, and find our confidence to persevere and grow in holiness in the God who desires our purity, we find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in it. You can have real progress and victory over sin in your life in the present, even while looking forward to the day when we will be perfected in righteousness and purity. And I hope that this is an encouragement for some of you who are fighting the good fight of faith and seeking to fight the indwelling sin in your own lives, who continue to pursue righteousness. And finally, it is in the promised Savior that we find the answer to the question of justice and judgment of evil the solution to the problem of the present evil and injustice in our lives and what we see around us is Jesus. God's people in Malachi's day lived under the assumption that bad things must happen to bad people, right? But if that were the case, where would that leave us before the judgment seat of God, the judge over all earth and creation? Yet it was through the injustice of the righteous and just and blameless Christ dying on the cross for man's sin and experiencing the wrath of God, which will make it possible for unjust people, unrighteous people like us to be justified, right? Evil and injustice will all be judged. For those in Christ, our sins were paid for on the cross by Christ. And we can long for when we are perfected and, and refined uh, in, in total purity and spend an eternity with our Lord and Savior. But for those who do not fear the Lord, it will be a judgment of consuming fire and eternal destruction. Because this is the God of justice and the promise that he makes for his people and concerning all the world. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for just this time that we have to really think about justice through the lens of your word through the lens of your character, Lord. And I pray that uh, it would not minimize the injustices that we see in this world, Lord. But first and foremost, it would help us to see our own hearts, Lord, w ways where we question your character, Lord, and we live in light of that, having maybe a small view of your righteousness, having a small view of your justice, Lord. And that I pray that it would lead us to a greater fear of you, Lord, as we uh, approach you, uh, in Christ, Lord, but wanting to, to please and honor you, Lord, and to live committed lives, and pursuing righteousness in all areas of our lives, Lord, so that we might not minimize uh, our own sin, Lord, while being pre preoccupied with uh, the sins of others in the outside world. So we pray that this will challenge us, this will convict us, Lord, and help us to ponder even for our own lives what it means uh, to understand and trust in your justice. 
We love you. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name.